0: Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in to the Born to Talk radio show podcast. My guest today is Deb Landry. Welcome to the show, Deb.
1: Thank you, Marcia. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure oh, this to is be going here. to be
0: so much fun because I had the wonderful privilege of also being on your podcast. So we've turned the tables. and That's right. You well, you are a woman of many hats. I could just, like if your head could just be the size of a football field, there would be 10,000 hats on top of it. Um, <laughs> it's true because you are, you know, you're like kind of like that, that Dos Equis man, you know, you're very interesting. So I thought you could well, just... Thank you. Um, Really, I thought you could just start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Tell us where you're I know you're in Maine, so just just tell us a little bit about yourself, please.
1: I am. I'm here in Maine. I am a mom and a wife, and what I do for work, actually, is uh, I'm an author, and I uh, own an independent publishing company and a consulting company. And I also run a 501c3 youth organization. So I do all kinds of things. And I've been doing it for many years. Uh, I sort of retired 20 years ago from medicine. I was a healthcare administrator for about 30 years. And then I decided to stay home with my children. So I started my own company and been doing it ever since. I think in January, we go into our 22nd year of being self-employed, which is which is a big, uh, a, a big deal, I think, especially nowadays, if you can be self-employed for that long of a period of time. Truly. And I believe you do this with your husband, Darren. Is that right? I do. Yes, we do that together, yes. So we're actually both in medicine. Uh, we do, uh, mostly do, for consulting, ophthalmology, uh, mostly specialize in retina and education, but I do all kinds of little things like, you know, building resumes, uh, coaching people, uh, you know, this is a whole bunch of operational things. My specialty is operations, so if it's got to do with an office or operations or, you know, even a family, and I'm a parenting coach, so even if we have to <laughs> set up a family dynamic, I can do that.
0: Well, like I said at the beginning, multiple hats, my friend. I don't see you yeah. as a juggler. I really just see you as—I I, I, just—I admire you, Deb. I admire you for all that you do. And at the end of the show, when when people have heard all about you, I can tell you, I am going to ask you how you balance because there there is a lot going on in your life, but all with purpose and um, the 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 challenge and the willingness to do the, all that you do and i i just i think it's admirable what we're going to be talking mostly about on today's show is your newly released book called independence it's a memoir yes. of secrets discovery and forgiveness so let's start with that how did you come up with the title of your book
1: Well, I went through many titles, but I, you know, I settled on independence for two reasons. It's kind of has a dual um, message. The first one is that I was born on the 4th of July, so Independence Day. And throughout my life, I've been looking for that independence. You know, you're always searching for something and it's just like Dorothy, you know, you're always going to, you've always had it. Uh, you got to find it, but uh, you just got to realize that you already had it, but I'm looking for my independence and, you know, I was searching for who I was and, you know, I had that feeling at a young age that something was not quite right. And so I just kept looking and looking and, I, and you know, even now, you know, I'm 66 and I was 60 when uh, I kind of put all the story together. So it was a journey. It was a journey.
0: That's, that's, that's really interesting. I'm sure there are people that we all have our own stories, and I bet you there yeah. are a lot of people listening right now that think, "Wow, I could probably really write my story. if for no other reason than you leave it for your children, I would right, love to be able right. to read my mother's story. I can't ask her. She's been gone for 30 years. More than thirty years, right? And I think it's 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 just terrific that you understand the value of of storytelling, so to speak. So you decided to write this like six years ago, right? Is that really when the inspiration hit you?
1: Yes, because you know I have other books. You know, you know, being a writer, I have written mostly children's books, but. You know, having this in my head wasn't something I always had. I have a couple other books that I've, you know, been working on, but this particular book, uh, I decided to write this as the story unfolded because I, it was, again, an adventure and it was uh, a discovery. And I was discovering things that I couldn't believe that I was discovering. But I, you know, what I knew was from the start until right now that there was a story there was this cloud behind me and how could I, you know, I had just had to look inside. And you know, one, one of the things I constantly say is this was a cloud, before there was some silver lining inside. And so it was, it, it, it has been a great journey, but the, even this journey is not over. This is like part one of the memoir. There's more to go. Wow.
0: Well, I, I'm interested to know that. So when you start the book at age seven, I believe, why, why that age particularly? I,
1: I think that's when I had my first uh, revelation of something was not quite right. And, you know, I pondered for a long time what I was going to put on the cover, and, and, and I looked and looked for the right photo and came up with this. I can actually remember where I was when I had this first thought. And I was standing on the corner at the end of our street just looking up the street looking up the hill, there was these two hills that looked up to our church. And I was just thinking, you know, something's not right. You know, I, I don't belong here. I don't feel like I should be here. And I think it was age seven because I spent a lot of time with my grandparents when I was really young. And then when, you know, I started school, I was staying home more. And then when I started staying home more, it became more, you know known to me that yeah something's not right so but but as a 7 year old i just didn't know i was very confused just all i knew was it wasn't right and i didn't know which way to go i was at a crossroads i didn't know where to go so,
0: Even as so the that's other why seven. i started
1: there yeah yeah that really surprises me and it's it's a it's a feeling that i've had you know all my life it's just it's just very strange uh, mm-hmm. i i don't think that uh, it's almost like numbers or ages have never really meant anything to me. I think I was born an adult and I'm still an adult. I don't think there was much time for me to be a child. And I talk about that in my book. And I talk about, um, you know, being that, uh, being that child, being not being a child, but being the parent to my mother. And I was always, I was always there for whatever she needed. And, uh, my mother was definitely mentally ill. She was extremely uh, narcissistic, and, but I didn't know any better. I didn't, right. That's the way I thought life was as a child. So I just flowed with it, and uh, I'm, I've always been able to, you know, juggle everything. Uh, I, I'm one that has to figure out what's, um, read be- between the lines type thing. You know, you say one thing, and I'm thinking, okay, what does she really mean? So I've always kind of been really good at that. I can I could take hints. <laughs> so, right. uh, so that's kind of where I started with that. That it's interesting. So you were just intuitive, frankly, for as long as you can remember, and some people well, are. Right. Out survival, though. Yeah, and you know, I, I probably I don't know if I was intuitive or I was just, you know, I that was a survival mode. You know what what do I need to do? You know, uh, my book covers a lot of. Um, uh, you know, a lot of areas, you know, t- uh, childhood trauma, uh, PTSD, uh, domestic violence. It, and there's many, many stories in there. There's many topics to talk about, but they're all about me. It's sort of like, you know, we talked in the beginning about my job. It's like I have all these little pieces, but it's just all one big job for me. And that's the way it was in my life. I just kind of—I had to anticipate when somebody is uh, abused, whether a child or a wife or a husband or anybody's abused. They—they um, they have to be intuitive to know what to do next to survive. And it's so—I—I I think I started that at a young age.
0: Well, well, so when did you actually realize that your mom's behavior was not normal?
1: Well, that's it, an interesting story because. <laughs> Uh, uh, I, I don't think I realized that, that it was, that she was any different than any other parent until I was probably in my late twenties, early thirties, and then maybe not like putting something together when I was, until I was in my forties. And, uh, you know, you kind of go through life and you just don't, some things you just don't think about. And I was sitting with a couple of my cousins. Uh, one day and, and and you know this was not too long ago this is just three or four years ago and I, and they were they're my age and I, I said to them I said well when did you know that my mother was there was something wrong with my mother that she was mentally ill or disturbed and uh, well they asked me they asked me the question first and I said I don't know around, around 40 maybe and they said I said well when did you figure that out and they said well we've always known and that was just a Big, big eye opener. Like they've always known, everybody's always known that she was a little off. But you know, their mother wasn't like that. Their mother was, you know, you know, just a really good mom, and you know, baked cookies and made sure they got to school on time and did all these things. And and so they, when they looked at their aunt, they saw, you know, that she was abnormal. And and the thing is, with that, everybody thought that. I knew that too, but i didn't know any different right I started out at I started at age one a day you know day one as being one year one day old and that uh that I thought life was until uh I just knew i knew as I got older that i didn't want to be like that, and then I started making opposite choices, but I think every child does that every teenager does that oh i'm not going to be right. like my mother i'm not going to be like my father um so so i guess you know i thought that part was normal so it's an interesting journey uh <laughs> i had gone um i had i had decided when my son uh, so, uh my when my boys were going off to college i decided i was going to uh, go to counseling because I used to work in obstetrics and gynecology. And so many women would have come in, you know, going through menopause and having a rough time. And, you know, that kind of happens just as their kids are going off to college and, you know, everything's changing at the same time. And I said, I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to get help and I'm going to help myself through that stage. So, when my children were in high school, I said, okay, I'm going to go for counseling. You know, I can I can do it, you know, and it'll be a fun thing to do. It'll be a fun journey because I'm a big <laughs> believer in therapy, big believer in therapy. And uh, so I did, and I went in and I, you know, because I've always been somebody in control, and I went in and I told my therapist, this is why I'm here, this is what we're going to talk about. And I oh, said, my, my children gosh. are going to college. <laughs> And this is, you know, I said I don't want to be a whiny wife or be depressed. I want to, you know, find myself or whatever. And that was the last time we talked about it. And we kind of went, you know, it, we just started talking, and all this stuff started coming up about, you know, my mother not being, not being normal. My life was not normal, and. So, and just, and and I would talk to my children, we'd be having dinner and I'd tell them stories about my childhood and my son would laugh. He would just, he would just chuckle and he'd say, mom, I can't believe that stuff, that what you're telling me is the truth. And of course, not going through it and things that my mother would say to me, just, just weird, weird things. And I just, Hmm. you know, took it as gospel.
0: May I ask you a personal question? Sure. Okay. So we've talked a lot about your mom. We've we've mentioned your aunt. Was there a man in this picture at all?
1: Yes, my dad. Yes, my father is um so so when I was uh my uh I have four children and my son is adopted. And when he was a teenager, we um you know, that's when DNA testing came out. So we did a DNA test. And in that uh, in that time, you know, we we're trying to figure out, you know, what was his background because we didn't have any information on his biological father. And so his girlfriend, at the, his, who is now his wife, and I did it for fun. And everything kind of came out just like we thought it was going to come out, except when I got mine.
0: Oh, and boy.
1: when I got mine, I found out that I was brought up uh you know French Canadian uh most a lot of people in Maine are French Canadian a lot of the Canadians come down here to work and and I was Italian. And Italian's not a very big you know uh it's not very big here in the state of Maine and that's I that's something's wrong, you know, something did my was my father's family Italian and they migrated into Uh, France or what happened and I I was just going crazy with that and of course my my dad who the man that brought me up was already deceased at at that time I wasn't speaking to my mother anymore uh, because I needed to cut we we had to physically cut ties um, just for for many many reasons that are outlined in the book and so I I had no idea and so I the man that I adored and that raised me my my dad I always call him my dad and the man that is my biological father the father and um so m- my dad and I were were close as close as my mother would allow us to be she she was the one in control um and he died when I was 28 so he died of a um a massive heart attack at mm-hmm. at 53 I think he was 52 or 53 when he died um, so yeah, he, he was a very strong, uh, presence in my life. I, he loved me. He was a great dad. Uh, oh, he stood, he stood back and let my mother do everything though. That was a lot of the therapy I had to go through. It's, you know, you get, I guess I'm not used to that with, you know, my husband and I, we discuss how we're going to raise the children and, you know, right. you, you work together as a team. And it wasn't that way. She had, she was, she ran the roost and he just kind of stayed back and stayed quiet. But now after all, I mean, I did so much research and I interviewed so many people and tried to figure out and put a timeline what was going on. And a couple of times in my life, my, I can remember two times that my dad came to me and said, um, you know, he says, you know, uh, a man doesn't touch a woman unless he in, unless he marries her. He says, a gentleman does not touch a woman. And I'm thinking, that is the weirdest thing for him to say to me when I'm, you know, 25 years old and already married. And mm-hmm. and so I never really understood what he was saying. But then when this is all done, he was trying to tell me he wasn't my biological father.
0: Oh, my gosh. Without coming we're gonna,
1: out. Yeah. We'll get, mm-hmm. We're going to so, get
0: more into that because... That's a very integral part of your story. But mm. I, you, you've talked about in your book um, um, about shame and escaping. And I was just wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what that means to you.
1: Oh, I think, um, yeah, I think shame was just something, you know, uh, I'm really big on words like that, like, you know, you love your child, you want your child to grow up and know what love is, what respect is, what gratitude is. And I grew up learning what shame was. So I would always run and hide every time something happened, because I don't know why I did that. I assume I did it for safety reasons, and, you know, but I had a lot of shame. And when I was 15, um, I got pregnant and got married for the first time. And I spent many years wondering why did I do that? How, I, you know, you're a bad girl. Why did you do that? And it took many years for me to to realize that when I was 15 years old, I was a kid, I was right. a baby, but I was living an adult life because I'd always been an adult. And so it took a long time. But that that with that brought a lot of shame, which I of course, don't have anymore, but every time, and I still do this to this day, but I know I do it, is that I want to escape every time something's wrong. Every time I can't take it, I want to run away. Now, that's, you know, over the years, I've learned that that's not how you handle something, but that's the way I handled it as a child and as a young adult. It's like, okay, pack up your bags and get out of here so that you don't have to be around, uh, you know, any of the drama, any of the trauma, any of, you know, any of that stuff. So right. um, shame's big. Shame's big for people, and it comes in all different sizes and shapes.
0: So. Really, and I suppose that a lot of people would, would have a different response based on what they were feeling was sh- a shame experience. And I can certainly understand when you say escaping that it's it makes total sense to me not escaping physically, escaping emotionally, just right. you know just you know diving under the bed and hoping nobody finds you, you know whether' exactly. that, and i mean and i'm saying that sort of metaphorically, but still i i i have i can i can't relate because i haven't had that experience, but I can certainly empathize with what you're saying. And how really difficult that must have been, because I don't know if your schoolmates or people around you really understood what your life experience was like for you. Did
1: you have siblings? I, well, I have a. Uh, I had a brother. That I do have a brother who's three and a half years younger than me, and it, uh-huh. and uh, so you know, usually if you're the oldest child, I was the oldest, right and i do have uh you know i do have new siblings that i've found in this process but oh good. Uh, we're going to talk about that me and my brother yeah that's the that's one of my silver linings and my brother go. uh you know he was a little boy so uh right. did he know what you know he, you know he was the apple of their eye uh never could quite figure that one out but when i figured out that he wasn't You know, he was my my dad's biological child. So, yes, you know, I could see where he would be, you know, he would be um, everybody's favorite and and the apple of everybody's eye or things like that. Um, So, no, I always felt that uh, I lived in a glass house. And that's what surprised me when I was talking about my cousins, because I figured I lived in a glass house and everybody knew how I was being treated. But nobody stepped in to help, so nobody really cared. So if they didn't care, I wasn't worth the investment of helping. Wow. So, you know, so that, that's kind of – and that's an afterthought. That's me looking back on it now. I, right. I, I did feel that everybody – that I lived in a glass house, and it's like, why isn't anybody coming to help me? This must mm-hmm. be normal because no one's coming in to say, hey, don't, don't do that. Don't do this. Right. And uh, so it was interesting.
0: How did you, how did you choose the stories in your book? Because your book is 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 a book of stories. So how did you go about doing that?
1: Well, I tried to do it chronologically, and then I tried to. Uh, one thing I didn't want to do is have. Uh, it's funny because people tell me, "Well, you did do this," but uh, I didn't. It wasn't like this one great big shocker. Here's you know this is something that happened that 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 ends up having the story go this way. It is a day-to-day life thing, and I wanted to pick day-to-day life stories that people can relate to so that people will understand, because it's not only helping me writing this book, I've already lived through it, but I wanted to help other people know that if they live in a situation, whether you know it's their parents or their husband or their wife or their partner or a boss or anybody that's mistreating them, that how... Small and significant things could be, and how they escalate into you know to being really bad, so I picked stories that I thought all fit together in some way, and I put them in chronological order. There were many, many stories that i didn't put in there, and i in um, just out of respect for my parents and and for my family i didn't put anything in that was going to hurt somebody it's not my job to you know, tell who steals things or who hurt you know, I, I just use steal as a you know, um, Right. You know, I Metaphor. don't want to put I don't want to tag anybody and say, Oh, you did this and you did that and I didn't want to do any of that. I'm not telling their story, I'm telling my story. So that's why how I got it down to uh, what stories led to the conclusion. So that's right. it was kinda okay, how do I get how do I get there? So I left out many, many stories you know and uh you know it would have been an encyclopedia if i wrote them all (laughs) so that's kind of how i chose them i chose them in a chronological and that helped with the move the story along for you to understand that nobody should be treated uh badly and everybody should be treated with respect and love
0: how long did it take you to write this book
1: about, well, uh, about 60, 65 years to live it, <laughs> and then uh, 11, about 11 months. You know, it it, it takes a while. I mean, anybody's going to write a book, it's going to take months and months. It's a lot of research. And I wrote and I researched and I wrote and I researched. So, uh, But when I decided, I decided last um, uh, September, October, I was going to write the book. And uh, it took me up until I think it was published in um uh end of August. Wow, so,
0: congratulations. 11 months. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I I've had a lot of authors on my show and everybody has a different style. Elizabeth, our friend Elizabeth Hamilton Garino, she cracks me up how she writes. She she just <laughs> sometimes she'll just write on a napkin or something. You know, did you um did you go straight to a computer and write, or did you handwrite? What was your process like?
1: Well, everything I did, everything on the computer. Um, mm-hmm. the, I did. I did it different ways. I uh, I like to write. Such I do a children's book. I can you know kind of. I do all my research, and then I can kind of knock the book book off in a few weeks. But uh, I I like going away. I like to go away for a couple weeks uh, and just have no one bothering me. And I just kind of sit in a nice place uh, this particular time. when I first started the book, I, I went to San Francisco because that's where my husband was going on business. And I sat there for a week and probably put about 60 hours into writing. Um, but I do, I do like to go to a quiet place where nobody's bothering me and I do have to be in the mood to write and I may write things down make a list. But most of it I do. And, you know, just I type. Um, mm-hmm. And I I type and I think I think a lot. Um, and I research a lot. I I research is the it's the big thing. Uh, but this one was hard to write. I mean, I do a lot of writing. Um, this one right. was tough, because this was so emotional. But, um, sure. but that's how I do it. Mm.
0: That's that's interesting for people that are listening and thinking, "Wow, you know, I'm just curious how she's done this. She's written a lot of books." You were um diagnosed with PTSD. I I'm sorry to hear that. How did you handle that diagnosis?
1: Well, uh you know, when I went to start when I started seeing my counselor and I, I was, you know, several months into it and um I, You know, I said to him, because my insurance covered it, and I said, how is my insurance covering me coming in, you know, just blabbing about poor me? It's, well, that's how I saw it. Oh, poor me. This guy's listening to me because I'm just, you know, wallowing in my life history. And I expected him to say something like, oh, I don't know, anxiety maybe. I, I had no clue what he was going to say because I figured how can they pay for it when there's nothing wrong with me. And he said PTSD, and I just, I just laughed, I just giggled, and he didn't giggle. And I said, "You're serious?" And he said, "Yes." And then he explained it to me. He, you now he thought that I knew. He, you know, he, I don't know, I don't know what he thought, but, um, you know, I, I really had to give that some, uh, some thought, and. Yeah. I even felt not deserving of it because when, you know, when I think of PTSD and I talk about it in my book about my dad having it from post war and, you know, people go to war and they come home, they don't say anything and they, you know, they lived such a traumatic time. But one of the things that my psychologist said was, you know, the brain does not know um, the difference between you being in a war and then you being in a house and being treated the way you were treated he says, you're, "Subconsciously, your brain just—you're just being treated poorly. You're just being treated badly. You know, you're going through trauma." He says, "So that's, you know, that's what PTSD is." And uh, so I came to, you know, I, you know, I, I know it. I know what I have now, and I'm, uh, I, I feel, uh, I feel better because I know. Because before I just thought, "Oh, I'm depressed. I have anxiety. What makes me feel this way?" And no, there's a reason I had it, and there is a reason for it. And when you know what the reason is, then you can have the proper treatment. And so, if I have, if I'm not feeling right or something's bothering me, I can say, "Oh, this is what it is," and it's much, it's much better. It's much better. It's much better than taking a pill or being having anxiety or depression and thinking, "I don't know, I don't know why I'm like this." So. Um, Highly recommended, you know, getting that diagnosis and, you know, uh, and P- I, I'm just a big advocate for mental illness. I, I hate that they call it mental illness just because it, they it's a chemical imbalance or, or it has to do with your head. They call it mental. It's still a physical condition. Right. And uh, uh, I think the stigma is getting better, but still it's, you know, There's it's a to tough go. one. So, yeah, yeah. Well, you you brought up some.
0: Is, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: No, there's many levels too. Everybody thinks somebody has to be downright out of their mind. It, there's levels that start off really, really light, and you know everybody, uh, sh- you know everybody should look into that. It doesn't. You don't have to be. Everybody's afraid, I think, sometimes to look into uh, what's going on, and because when you do find out what it is, you have to deal with it. Like I had to deal with the PTSD. So. Right.
0: I I think you're right. I think that there's a lot of generational trauma that many of us have no idea that people that we care about and know about that we've met in our life's journey actually could be an, a perfect example of what you just said, that there are levels. And I think you said that really well so that if somebody is listening and recognizes this behavior, you know for whatever reason, you know, whatever that trauma might be. Um it could be absolutely nothing that happened to you, but maybe somebody that you love and lost.
1: Right. And right. you know,
0: like you said or you or you were in the war. There's like you said there are a lot of different avenues. And you know, I I you you mentioned at the top of the show how much importance that you see to to words. And you and I really share that um, great a, a lot. We both agree that words carry a lot of weight, and it doesn't carry the same amount of weight for everybody. Um, right. I when I went into therapy um, because I am a believer of therapy, my therapist, who was also a male, said to me, "Marsha, I want you to visualize yourself. Think of yourself as wearing a backpack." And inside that backpack are boulders, boulders of experiences, boulders of whatever it is that's going on in your life. Maybe it has to do with your mother being ill. Maybe it has to do with a lot of different things that maybe you've always wanted to be a perfect mother. Really? Perfect? And he said, can you stand, can you stand up straight with all those boulders back there? No. And I said, oh, No, he said, Mm. you will never be able to stand up straight with boulders in your backpack until you remove them. Right. That's right. So I will never forget that I was in my early 30s. This was a very, very long time ago. But But the visual of that. Um, has always stayed with me, and i i've mentioned it to other people sometimes when I see them. I think like they're struggling, and I sort of use that same description. Do you feel like you're standing up straight because I have a feeling there's a lot hanging there you know we, we learn now in yoga about our shoulders and you know getting that right. breath work done and dropping those shoulders and you know really having our body in, in alignment. Um, physically and mentally so i want to hear about because i because it's really such a significant part of your story about the genealogical discovery because you've sort of alluded to that and i would like to hear how that mystery was solved tell us about that
1: well you know it like I said, I um, you know I did a DNA test recreationally for fun. You know, I just I, I assumed it was going to come back and it was going to tell me that I was fifty percent Irish and fifty percent French Canadian, and there was not going to be anything else there. And it, we did it back several several years ago, so it was when it first started coming out. And when I. Um, You know, I I would never tell anybody now to go get a DNA test (laughs) unless I talk to them first, the recreational Hmm. DNA test. Um, But uh, because you don't know, I have in my research, I have spoken to so many people that have been shocked and you know yes it's nice like the commercial you see on tv that says oh find out about your you know the country you came from and all that but I so cried. many people are finding out especially people around our age who mm-hmm. uh, you know because things we do today and things we did back in the 40s and 50s you know were taboo back then so uh and i don't think my mother ever knew that anybody was ever going to find out who the father of her child was you know and when i was conceived in 1953 and So, uh, you know, in this discovery, I found that I was, um, again, Italian and didn't make any sense to me. But then things started falling into place. It was kind of like a domino effect. Mm -hmm. I was trying to find relatives and relatives were second, third, fourth and beyond cousins. So I couldn't find anybody. I talked to people and connect with them on uh, I did three or four different of the DNA um, sites and but nobody nobody knew anything, and then finally one day this lady pops up. These two people, two women, pop up on my uh, on, on ancestry dot com, and it said that they were very close relatives, and they were equivalent to my daughter and my brother. Um. And so, uh, and my and my brother did the test as well, which showed that we were not by we were half siblings, not full siblings. And so I just started doing the research, and what, and uh, we we did more. We ended up doing uh, Twenty Three and Me, and when we did that, we found out that we were half sisters. And uh, so I have a half sister. She lives about ten miles from me. Um, it's certainly that silver lining inside of one of my clouds. And, uh, you know, I've really enjoyed getting to know her. It was, you know, it was, it's a very strange feeling to be our age. She's, uh, she's two years older than me. And, you know, um, the, the interesting story was the first day we were going to meet, I went into the store and I wanted to buy her a card mm-hmm. and I, I, don't have a sister. I was so excited. And every card I read, was not, it just, you know, it was like, oh, remember when we were kids? Oh, you know, I love you so much. You're my sister. And there was nothing that said, oh, hi, uh, I'm your sister. You know, I don't. (laughs) So, you know, so I bought her flowers instead. But (laughs) it was, uh, but I can do that now because we've had a year and a half to get to know each other. and, And then I had somebody to go on the journey with me. Mm-hmm. So I was you know I was walking this journey of looking for my biological family, and all of a sudden now I had her. And we, you know, we have done a lot of research together. That, that that sort of was the foundation of our relationship. It's how we got to know each other. First, you know, all we were talking about was who was our father, you know, how did our mothers meet him, things like that. And, you know, now it's more, you know, what's the family doing? And we're not talking about that DNA stuff. Anymore. Right. So it's, it's the foundation of our relationship. We did in our research find. So together we found who he was. We did find um, three other siblings. Yeah, three other siblings. And but when we found them, they wanted nothing to do with us. Mm -hmm. And they didn't care what their father did when he was younger. We found out that our biological father was deceased. And but we did find a bunch of other relatives who have been amazing and extremely helpful putting our family tree together. So um, so at least we have a story. Yeah, you know, and and that's been that's been great, and and just I just can't tell you how thrilled I am to have a sister. So
0: yeah, well, I I love the way you've titled your book because it is a glimpse, and at some point I know before we conclude this show together, we're going to talk about forgiveness. But did you? did you work with a professional or did you work with your therapist while you were writing this book? Did you get some guidance?
1: I did. I did. I, um, it was a team effort uh, because some of it was very hard to write. And my, you know, my husband was great. He was, um, uh, you know, he helped me research. He, you know, he was there for me whenever I needed anybody. Um, uh, Of course we had editors, we had a psychologist. I, I worked with my, my therapist, and I also had somebody who was a social, licensed social worker, and she helped edit it. She helped uh, with things like taking me deeper into the book, like, well, how did you feel when, you, when this happened to you? Or might see another side of the story that you think that, you know, it's there for me, but it wasn't on paper. And so it was a team of people, you know, editors, um, you know, so I, I would say about five people. Uh, mm-hmm. assist, four people assisting me doing this, um, so you know, and decide, and they were even deciding on. Well, you know, maybe this story isn't relevant, or maybe do you have another story like this? And uh, it, they were very helpful. It was, but it was a team effort.
0: You know, you you used a word, and like I said, uh, they pop out. They really do pop out. And I have a really <laughs> good friend that that says to me all the time, "Great questions to ask." Anybody is how did you feel when because it yeah. really it really allows that person without judgment because we know that from yoga to not judge. I work on that because i don 't judge you, but I do judge me and i 'm working on that so how did you feel that 's what I want to ask you how did you feel when you were writing this? What I would call yes, the book is independence, but gosh, you could have just written the road to discovery too. I, I mean, how did you feel doing all of this, um, going through this
1: process? Well, the part about my biological father very easy to write. It was very easy. It was. I found this. I, I already knew that I my my dad wasn't my father. So when I got to that point. Very easy, the very first part though was a lot of soul searching and there were times that i was it just depressed me and I had to put it down because I just you know and then my my consulting with my therapist became a therapy session because I needed to really work through it, and he was great with that um so it's, it's not an easy thing to do. It It isn't. And there was times that I couldn't even write it. So, so I would, you know, my husband kept saying, just write it, just write it, just write what you want to say. And then you're going to go back and revisit it. And I did, it had uh, between me rewriting and the editors rewriting and, and the social worker looking at it, we had 12 edits. Wow. And I ordinarily would not have 12 edits in my book but that wasn't mm-hmm. edit for, you know, grammatical errors and things like that but it was for everything. Uh right. so it was it was a process but there was there was it was a roller coaster it definitely was.
0: But you did talk about that there was some some silver linings and I want to get to that in just one second but I because I think that that's really important. So you have reconnected with several of, a, of your family members now, it sounds like, right? So how did that feel yeah. as you started discovering other sib- half-siblings and things like that?
1: It was very strange. It, 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 I don't know how to, how to even explain mm-hmm. it. Uh, I, there's all kinds of emotions like, do you, you know, wow, I, you meet this person like my sister. It's like, wow, I've missed so much with you. You know, we're in our late 60s now, and now I've missed so much with you, and I just want to get so much in. And, and you know, and she has a husband, and I have a niece. And and then on the other side of that, you've got, uh, we've got three siblings that you know don't even want to talk to us. They don't, you know. It's like, you know, they were they were so upset. It's like, why? Wow, how dare you come in and tell me that you're my sister? And so there's a lot of emotion there. Negative negative feelings. Uh again, feelings of rejection. Uh that's that's a big one that people get with, with these DNA tests. And so so all over the place. Uh all over the place with the emotions. And you know. So but I, I
0: but yeah, the, I'm sorry. I, I'm trying the, to just visualize what you're saying. And it, it's it's a lot, Deb, truly, wasn't it?
1: It is. It is. Uh, uh, some of the things though, we met, we connected with three uh, second cousins and we just, I just love them and, and just getting together with them and them telling us old stories, you know, stories about our grandparents that we don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and then I met a couple of other cousins on the other side of our family and, you know, them telling us stories and, and giving giving us a visualization of what our father was like, what kind of life he lived, uh, all all those things. Um, mm-hmm. So so yeah, it's just it's just a big old bowl of bad, good, and indifferent.
0: Yeah.
1: Was it painful to write? Yes. Yeah, it was, it, and sometimes yes, yeah, because mm-hmm. you have to realize that. You know, um, uh, one thing that I didn't want, because, you know, I didn't want anybody to think that I was a whiny person, poor me, ain't it awful, she did not have a very good life. That wasn't what I was trying to get across to anybody. What I was trying to do was just tell my story. And, Mm And all the editors, yeah, they validated that I wasn't doing that. And that was my own baggage that I was bringing into this. But the one thing that you know that i that I talk about in the end of my book is is the forgiveness part of it. And this book was not written to put my parents down. This book was they had their own crap going on in their lives. I don't know what it was. I know some of it through my research, but I don't know I don't know what my mother was thinking when she found out she was pregnant. Uh, you know, and you know of course she didn't want to be pregnant. she wasn't married. And she found somebody to marry her. And, you know, what turmoil she went through at that time. You know, what my, was going through my father's head when he came home from the military. And, you know, he had so many issues. And so, you know, I loved my parents. That's, uh, they're the two people that raised me. And that's all I know for mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Um. But I had to realize when enough was enough and when enough was enough to say, I had to save myself. And that's kind of where the word um, independence comes in. And the forgiveness comes in is forgiving but not forgetting and understanding what forgiveness is. I think a lot of times people think that if if you forgive, you must forget and go right back into the same situation. And it's not that at all. And I think one of the things that I realized is that, you know, after my discoveries, then the forgiveness was, was just, uh, I found out what forgiveness meant. And uh, it was nice to let it go. So. Did it bring you peace? Yes, most definitely. Most definitely. This being on the other side is a much better place to be than being in the middle of the book, writing it. (laughs) It's it's, again, validation, you know, somebody um, in my situation, you know, sometimes needs validation from other people saying, Oh yeah, yeah. I went through this or wow, you went through this. This is amazing. Um, There's so many people out there that are going through uh, you know, everybody has their story. Everybody has their own journey. And you know you can't judge other people. You don't. You don't. You're not walking in their shoes, and that's and that's exactly what I the, what I wanted to say in the end about my parents. I wasn't walking in their shoes, and did they write? You know, and then they were only human, and they made mistakes. Unfortunately, I was the collateral damage.
0: Yeah. Wow. It, it's it's pretty. So if if I was, I want to talk about crossroads, but I do want to just ask you this before, because maybe the the two interweave, but I certainly don't want to get off the air without really hearing you talk about your silver linings. And I don't want to put those words in your mouth. I know what I've been writing as notes, but how would you classify your silver linings?
1: Well, um, I think closure is a big one and being able to put to and to have answers to what i've been thinking about since i was 7 so that that's a big one that's a big silver lining finding my sister huge one huge one and i think understanding what forgiveness is and you know and getting rid of the shame and the blame and just moving on with my life and, you know, somebody might say, well, you're not really moving on because you're still talking about your story. But I'm, I have moved on, and I want to help other people. I've actually started – I've had so many people contact me about my book. My book went to uh, number two um, mm-hmm. after it was released. And uh, so, you know, a lot of people are reading it. People are contacting me with stories um i've started a group for women um that have gone through some things like this and it's just not a group where anybody can join it's people that are contacting me for help and so now i'm helping others that have um you know that are going through the same thing that need somebody to hold their hand to get through even if it's just to say hey you're a wonderful person
0: well it's that's that's really terrific and it's it's ideally the perfect segue to what I want to talk about next because I said you you got a lot of hats going on there. he had something yeah. pretty significant, pretty darn significant, happen this week. You want to tell people how you were acknowledged?
1: Oh yeah, so so uh, we we do. I'll give you a little hint to the first one. We were, uh, last week was a very big week for me. Uh, we we uh, were awarded a grant, but I can't release the details on the new project until they release their press release. So that's coming up sometime this week. I also, my book hit number two on the Amazon bestseller list. And then uh, I received a uh, legislative sentiment from the state of Maine for my 20 years, of uh, volunteer service to the children of Maine through my uh, nonprofit agency Crossroads. So that meant so much to me to be acknowledged for you know everything that I have done. Because when I started this, when I started Crossroads, uh, it, it was um, for you know it, the uh, I don't know we, I guess our mission you would call it was to teach children how to be resilient and and show them love respect. Gratitude, you know, acceptance, all this stuff. And I've worked um, many years uh, with the main state um, about uh, bullying prevention laws. And, you know, I've, uh, we've changed the laws three times in the last 15 years. But uh, we have great laws. We have great civil rights laws, great laws for kids in schools and things like that. And I've worked really hard on that. So that's kind of where the award has come from and where our nonprofit that's, is headed. Yeah, so.
0: That's, that's really terrific because, you know, it was, look, this has been a year. Unprecedented to anything we've ever experienced. Children normally go to school with their classmates, and clearly, from in most parts of this country, certainly here in California, you know, children are not going to to class with their children. Maybe there's parts of California that are, but in Los Angeles, they're not. And you know, the the developmental stages of youth um, are different, and bullying frankly as you know yourself it can happen whether it's that kid on the playground that says can't you ever catch the ball you're so stupid and you're so unathletic or you know you look at your face you're you're full of zits or whatever you heard as a kid right you know i had a really weird weird front tooth that didn't closed when my mouth closed you could still sort of see it until i got my braces and i sort of started to feel normal so everybody has these different things but i don't think that bullying has stopped just because children are not meeting in fact in some ways children are not in school teachers are not seeing them they're not being aware of oh you know what something's not right here with joey something's changed from when joey came here in september and now we're to november i need we need to bring in somebody to help us with this so i think that what you're doing in your uh, crossroads about bullying in some ways is just pivoted right it's just taken on another way of helping children wouldn't you say
1: yes yes it has and you know, I always tell uh, people that bullying is a symptom of a much larger issue. And, you know, we can't put a Band-Aid over it. We got to look at what the issue is. And the issue is the lack of, of, of good social graces. And we have to, and, and, and lots of times, all this, all of this is put onto the teachers in school or the, you know, and yes, they need to run their classroom and they didn't make sure the kids are all doing what they're supposed to be doing. However, the kids come to them with this already. And, mm-hmm. Kids that bully there there's a large percent of kids that bully that will end up becoming people that are either, either in jail or or participate in domestic violence mm-hmm. so you know it 's a big cycle it's just a big vicious cycle where you know you got they're at home they're learning about these things and they're bringing them to school and they 're doing them to other people and it 's just that big bully thing who's the king on the mountain and So, how do you stop that? You have to, it's about teaching people, and it's sad that we have to teach people this, but teaching people to be kind and respectful. And I always focus on the word respect. That's my word. If you have self and mutual respect, then we would not have any of these problems. You don't have to like somebody. You don't have to like what they do. You don't have to, you don't have to be kind. You don't have to be anything. You just need to be respect yourself and respect other people, and, you know, you wouldn't have any of these problems. Teaching children at a very young age, and schools don't get them until they're five, so we have to retrain them. And so that's something that's really, that I feel is missing in our society. Plus with social media, people can say things without um, Looking somebody in the eye,
0: right? And
1: so much is done with that. We spent a lot. We spend a lot of time researching cyberbullying and you know social media bullying and things like that. It's it's. Uh, I've been doing this uh, the bullying prevention for about fifteen, sixteen years, and I have not seen it get better. Um, it it just calls for more work, and more kindness, and more respect, and and just you know, give as much as you can.
0: I'd be curious to know, since you have a lot of experience in this, is it is it ever a cycle where the kid that is doing the bullying has him or herself also been bullied? Is it a full probably. circle?
1: Yes, yes, probably. Mm-hmm. You know, they. You know, lots of times people say, "Why? Why does that kid bully?" Well, you know, and they say, "Well he comes from a nice family. they have plenty of money. they have this, they have that there there's no um economic or social economic reason anybody does anything. People again label you for no no reason at all. You kids can't label bullies. You don't know who that bully's going to be, but they're probably being bullied elsewhere at home by uh maybe that's just the way their family is, maybe that's maybe they found it on t v We don't know where they get it but yes usually and some some people just do it for power power is a huge huge piece of bullying if i can make if i can put you down it will make me feel better about myself now that's a stupid way of looking at something no. but a lot of people feel that way if i put you down that brings me to the top it's the king on the mountain type thing right. so yes it's it's a vicious cycle all all the way around and you know, um, I gave this talk once to a bunch of uh, teachers, and uh, I said, you know, seven percent of kids that are that are bullied, uh, you know, a lot, you know, will commit suicide. And, and one of the teachers stood up. He was like the basketball coach, and he said, "Well, seven percent's not bad." And I said, "Really? Seven I said, "Do you hear what you're saying?" And and at seven percent, I said, 7 percent? Yes." I said that's that's seven kids out of 100. And 40% of kids that are uh, either uh, well I think transgender kids 40%. I'm not really sure what the the gay lesbian rate is, but 40% of kids will, will commit suicide because of the way society treats them. It's um. just it's it's just crazy. And I I'm really big on on research-based information because this is a very sensitive issue.
0: Right. Well, I I can appreciate that. So let's take this over to a little bit happier of a note before we say goodbye to each other because this is something I always like asking my guests because I guess I relate to it from my perspective and so I'd like to hear it from yours. I know you live in the most gorgeous state, truly. I mean, I couldn't take the winners, but nobody beats your fall, frankly. Uh, right. <laughs> you know, that's just how it is. But how do you balance, Deb? You you have all these hats on. When you take the hats off, how do you balance all of those hats and your personal
1: Deb space? Well, it. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I you know first of all my first answer is I don't know because I just do it but uh basically what I do is my office my office is in my house and I've worked in my uh house ever since uh, I started my own business we don't need to have space so I just have one office here so my my life becomes it's it's whole even though there's a lot of little pieces to it, it it's almost whole and I do have to stop at night you ha- you learn you learn, uh, you know, to choose what you have to do. I know that when if it's 5 or 6 o'clock, I need to stop and, you know, it's time to get dinner and spend time with the family and things like that. You become, you become good at it. And I've been watching a lot of people look talk about this now that with COVID and how, you know, they're staying home and they're wearing sweatpants and all that. Everything they're talking about I went through 20 years ago. I refuse to wear sweatpants because I figure, you know, you do need to get up and get dressed. And there's all these things that you have to do. So you have to, you have to be in charge of yourself. You have to balance yourself. And I might be throwing in a load of laundry, doing uh, a talk on the radio, and writing a report or booking somebody for an appointment to go and do some education. It doesn't matter. It's all one big job. It's all these little pieces. And sometimes... One needs more attention than the other, and you know, and that's when you put that little effort in. But it is it is a lot of work. But you need to learn balance, and you need to take self care.
0: I think I I I agree with you, and I think that some of us that are so uberly directed don't always take that self care time, and that can mean that doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. It really right. doesn't. Just because I happen to really appreciate my yoga practice doesn't mean that that's right for the next person. Maybe getting right. your nails done is great for you, but that isn't what's for the next person. Maybe picking exactly. up a book and being quiet, you know, is, is your self-care. So everybody has to come to it on their own. I think the key is to come to it.
1: That right. so in searching. order to you never stop learning. Right.
0: No, you never stop learning, and if you keep your eyes wide open to what's in front of you and what you can learn and what you can share, because maybe what you've got you can share with others. I realize we're both um, Rotarians. I noticed that on your um, on your bio. So sharing and, and being of service to others is is very important. It's it, it's it's a good thing in life. So right, I just right. I, I'm just. I'm really grateful that you've spent this hour with me. I've come to really get to know you. Our listeners have come to get to know you. I know you've done a lot of shows before, and every show brings its own personality, and I think that that makes it very great, too. And I'm just really grateful for the connection through Elizabeth and having this wonderful opportunity to share this time with you. And I look forward to this uh, upcoming um, possibility that's coming up this week, and I'll be happy to share it with others. I would like people to know that you are very easy to be found. If you go to Bryson, and that's spelled B-R-Y-S-O-N, taylor t-a-y-l-o-r dot com you can find everything that there has to do with deb there including her book her business all about deb and i'll make sure that that goes into the follow-up deb so that people can find you and learn more about you and, and purchase your book so I just want thank to thank you. you so I want to thank you so much for taking your time today and enjoying this time together for both of us. It's it's been a it's been a delightful experience.
1: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I always love talking with you. Oh, it's the truth.
0: All right, everybody. Well, I'm going to let you get on with your day. Everyone be very safe out there during this week wherever it is you live. Love the ones you're with. And I'll see you again next week. Bye for now.